Welcome to the Therapy Deconstructed Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Bonnie Wims, therapist, coach, and a UK chartered counseling psychologist. So my mission here is to talk about therapy in a way that's easy to understand and to dispel any misunderstandings and rumors about what therapy is, who it's for, and who it's not for. This podcast is my way of deconstructing the conventional wisdom and the media narratives about therapy and explaining what's what. I will offer you the tools and support needed to live the life you've always dreamed of living. So together, we can use our resources and understanding to help you to take advantage of this beautiful thing and live a life with the most possibilities. So let's pull back this curtain and remove the mystery, the secrecy, and the stigma attached to the whole thing. Hi, welcome to this month's podcast entitled Therapy Deconstructed. I'm Dr. Bonnie Wims, and every month I show up here to talk to you about ideas and misconceptions that maybe we all have about therapy and what happens in the therapeutic setting. I try to break down these barriers that I think lead to misconceptions and the stigma. So let's dive in. This month is an upper topic of grief. And I know, I know. But I think it's important because grief is one of those things that there is not a living person on this earth that hasn't experienced it or won't experience it. And many of us experience it many times over in our lifetime. So I want to talk about what it is and how to understand it. First, like I always do, I'd like to start with a story. And this story is a personal one of grief. I decided to share this because it's been on my mind recently for a few reasons. And I thought it was an appropriate sort of illustration for you on how um, someone who knows better, like myself, as a psychologist can still exist for a long time with some unresolved grief that impacts your life in a negative way. So I'm going to tell you the story of a good friend of mine, and I'm going to call her George. (laughs) And George was such a good friend. George was somebody very special to me and to my family and someone that we all enjoyed being around quite a bit. She loved to sew and quilt. And I didn't know very many people of sort of a younger age that liked to do those things. She was always creating something with her hands. It was fascinating to sit with her as she patiently created these masterpieces. And we would have these amazing talks and visits and all sorts of topics would be discussed while she was busy creating these things. She also loved to travel. She had one of those gentle and loving personalities, you know, the one that's kind of kindness, kindness forward, the person that comes into situation with kindness and love. She wasn't perfect. Um, I know a lot of people tend to idealize people who have died. I know she wasn't perfect, but she is missed and she's missed every day. So several years ago, she had a seizure, completely unexpected. And in fact, wasn't even sure it was a seizure um, at the time, but inevitably it was found out that it definitely was. And then upon some tests, was diagnosed with 
several things, but the main thing was that she had this brain tumor and the brain tumor had to come out. So she was rushed into surgery, had brain surgery. And, you know, this was all just in such a rapid succession of somebody's fine and next thing you know, they're having brain surgery. The brain surgery was fine. She came out of it fine, but the prognosis was not good. And the treatment options available to her were also not good. So after, I am sure, a lot of soul searching and a lot of conversations with her own family and friends, she decided not to pursue treatment. And she decided to live out the remainder of her time, not in, you know, the throes of sickness from the treatment, but just to live. And, you know, this was such an overwhelming feeling of sadness for all of us. And it was difficult to really know how to process uh, such a thing. And I think as I was busy trying to catch up to the events, I just never really processed it. To sort of put the icing on the cake for me, I suppose, it was she lived, she had moved away. And so I had to travel to see her. And I did. And I knew that I was traveling uh, this last time to say goodbye. And I had never really had to do that before. As an adult, I had never had to go see someone was dying and who I knew I would never see again. And that visit was so difficult and so beautiful and everything in between. Life takes on a whole different way of understanding what it means to be human when you're looking at someone who you know is soon going to leave you forever. So I said goodbye. I was a mess and she was the strong one. And I left and she did die not that long after that. Now, this was a very difficult thing for me, but obviously it was difficult for her family and for her friends. And so it was, it was just something that I think we were still all in shock because it all happened so quickly. And we honored her decision to uh, forego the treatment so that she could have the kind of remaining months the way that she did. And she got to see people and say goodbye to people who loved her. And she felt well enough for those visits. And it was incredible. The strength and courage and almost a serene quality about her that I was in awe of. So as I said, I said goodbye and I left and I never saw her again. I think I know now, as I've been preparing for this podcast, that I parked a lot of those feelings because I didn't know how to process it. And I think I've been stuck. I'll explain to you more about why I think that, but I think there's some indicators quite quickly for me about the foggy details and some de denial at times and refusal to discuss her. Some people call this grief brain, where you're just not really able to process things maybe as efficiently or as clearly as you used to. So what is this thing, grief? You know, how do we understand it? If you Google it or you look it up in the dictionary, it's quite simple. They say things like deep sorrow, which is fair enough. 
But it's more complicated than that, I think. And it's our individual response to a loss. And we know now that obviously it's felt quite strongly emotionally, but it also can be felt physically. It can be felt behaviorally. It can be felt spiritually. And it can be felt very different depending on the culture that you are part of. And our brains respond to grief in a very strong way. I believe, after speaking to some people smarter than me about my process of grieving, that I'm stuck in something called prolonged grief. And what is this prolonged grief? Because, I mean, it was seven years ago. The prolonged grief is sort of this refusal, you know, this refusal to process what's going on. You may avoid memories. You may avoid talking about the person or the situation, whatever you lost. There may be an element of disbelief where you actually even at times forget or don't believe that you've suffered that loss. The thing about the memories that when they do come involuntarily, we can feel as if the pain is a result of it happening again right now. I was talking about this podcast with my family the other day. And as I began to explain the process of saying goodbye to my friend George, I was overwhelmed and I began crying. This feeling of pain that was similar to when the event happened is another clue that I'm in prolonged grief because I feel sometimes as if it just happened yesterday. Along with this can come more complicated feelings such as a feeling of powerlessness or meaninglessness where you just kind of wonder what you're going on for. What is life worth without this person or this situation? So how does grief affect your brain? You know, what is happening there? So we understand that brains, our brain sees it as an emotional trauma and responds accordingly. So when you have trauma, your brain goes into fight or flight and Everything's about survival and everything's heightened because you feel trauma. The problem with that is that that can become a chronic condition where you're sort of always elevated or very nearly always elevated because every time I think about my friend George, I go back to that moment and I'm back to that fight or flight, which we know is very difficult on our nervous systems and can cause all sorts of health issues our heart rate increases. And because we're in fight or flight and because we're in this trauma response, we have difficulty processing things in a calmer sort of creative way because that part of our brain has been shut down in order for us to survive. The fight or flight, our brain feels that we're in danger. So that chronic response to this grief, as you can see, not only is difficult, find yourself crying seven years later telling the story. But it's also very hard on our bodies and hard on our the way in which we live. I began to understand as I looked into this that there's a big difference between the initial grief and the grieving. So the initial grief, you know, that's that, that intense feeling and it can be very overwhelming. Someone's died, so we've suffered a huge loss. Something's happened that we are interpreting as a loss. And it can be incredibly overwhelming. Once again, those feelings of meaninglessness or powerlessness come in. And it's difficult to know what to do. 
that's the initial grief. And, you know, we have these traditions and how to sort of help each other through that. Funerals are a huge tradition that is for the grieving. It's for the people who have had this loss. And it marks the event. It marks the person's life. And there's a processing that goes on that is very, very helpful. Grieving is where we're now trying to integrate that loss into our life because we're living. Days have gone by. We've gone back to work. The casseroles have stopped coming. There's no more cards showing up. We have an expectation that we feel from other people that maybe, okay, you've had your loss, but it's time to move on. And in that process, we may feel as if we're supposed to be done grieving by now. You know, we used to think that grief was like, you know, step one, two, three, four, five. And now we know it's so individual. And we know that everyone goes through different phases and different aspects of grief in their own way, depending on who they are, where they've raised, and what loss it is that they've endured. So in my grieving process for my friend George, I do understand now that there's been some delay and that I haven't really integrated her loss into my life. Years ago, many, many years ago, my father died. And I have a very complicated relationship with my father. It was an abusive relationship. And so when he died, I was confused. I didn't know how to feel. On one end, someone has died, and that's sad. Of course, that's sad. But on the other end, I hadn't spoken to him in years, and he wasn't really a part of my life. And when he was, it was very difficult. So I think I was numb at the funeral. I think I remember not really feeling much at all. And fast forward about six months, I found myself at a hospital donating platelets. Now, looking back on that, why was I donating platelets on a cancer ward six months after my father died of cancer? I think there was a connection, but at the time I didn't even see it and I didn't notice it. But I went to this hospital to donate platelets and I went up onto the cancer ward floor, which I didn't, I guess I didn't really think through that it was going to be actually on the floor of the cancer ward. As I walked onto that floor, I was greeted by many older gentlemen in hospital gowns pushing IV poles. I was immediately taken back to the last time I'd seen my father because that's how he looked. I felt my heart rate go up. I felt sweaty. I felt scared. And I didn't really know why. I wasn't really connecting things. So I went ahead into the platelet donation room, which is just this small room off the ward, couple recliners, DVD player to play your uh, movie that you pick, and a wonderful woman who was there to help me donate my platelets. If you haven't donated platelets, it's a very long process where they take out your blood and then give it back to you. So you've got two IVs and they recline you and you watch a movie and it basically takes a couple hours. I'd never done it before, but I had been told about it by a couple friends and I thought it was something I wanted to do. My blood pressure was up, my heart rate was up, I wasn't feeling settled and she had difficulty. She had difficulty getting the IV in. She had difficulty getting the ID, the whole process with the IV process to go. I guess there was 
uh, just issues. And I'm sure they were, were related to my stress level. So after about the third try, I am ready to like climb the ceiling. I am so anxious and I don't understand why. I just know every cell in my body wanted to run. The messaging inside of me was run. So I apologized and I just said, I have to go. She was very considerate. She took the IVs out and I ran. I just ran. I got to my car and I started to drive and I just thought, just go back to work. Just, just, this is fine. Just get out of there. You weren't ready, whatever. And I was only a few minutes down the uh, freeway when I felt the emotion bubbling up out of my throat, like, like an eruption of some sort. And I had to pull over and I did. And I sobbed. I sobbed like I hadn't sobbed. You know, I cried like I hadn't cried for my father. And it was cathartic, I have to say, but it was also so confusing for me because it was six months later, I thought I'd been fine. Um, and this is what happened. You know, I needed that release. I needed to acknowledge that although my feelings for my father were complicated, there was love. And this person meant something to me and they were no longer there. And I needed to process that. I needed to acknowledge and process that. So unresolved grief, you know, I think it can extend the grieving process. If you get derailed in the process through denial or lack of integration in your life, sometimes difficult feelings are refused. Maybe we've got some anger toward this person who's died. Maybe we've got guilt, even some shame. And then we get stuck because we don't want to acknowledge that. It's too confusing. And we're trying to control something that we can't control. And we're trying to just live and deny that we've had this loss. And from firsthand experience, I'll tell you, it's not possible to deny that experience. Years ago, I was at a conference and this woman came up to the podium and did a presentation. Her name was Dr. Pauline Boss. And she's written a book called Ambiguous Loss, Learning to Live with Unresolved Grief. And there's a lot of ambiguous grief out there. There's a lot of reasons for us to not feel like that, you know, it's cut and dry. Examples she gave would were a family member with dementia, so that there's sort of this long goodbye where you're you're experiencing losses all the time but they're not marked by a funeral. They're not marked by a sympathy card. Moving, losing neighbors, family, friends, when you move from one state to another or country to another can feel like such a great loss. But it's ambiguous and even not even thought of as a loss. Society can make us feel like we shouldn't be feeling bad about something we're feeling a loss over. The, bo the book is a beautiful thing, and I would highly recommend it. I'd like to read just this tiny little uh, thing that she included. And she called, She says it's an old English nursery rhyme. But when we're thinking about the uncertainty and the idea of an ambiguous loss, I think this is perfect. So it goes like this. As I was walking up the stair, I met a man who was not there. He was not there again today. Oh, how I wish he'd go away. So this uncertainty about presence versus absence, you know, I think it comes into 
our denial sometimes that someone has gone. And it also comes into acute losses that maybe don't fit the norm. You know, maybe they're not actually a death. Maybe we've just lost something and we feel it. And that's the point. In these ambiguous losses, I think the lack of rituals that support us over that loss are one of the ways in which people can struggle. That's why a lot of times we will encourage different rituals in therapy to mark the loss of something, even if it's not a death, so that there can be a remembrance, a reverence around that loss. I also think the loss can be felt in so many ways that society at large doesn't want to talk about. People say, I don't know how to talk to people when they've experienced a big loss. I don't know what to say. I don't want to make it worse. So a lot of times people say nothing. People come into therapy and tell me that no one wants to talk about my sister who died anymore. No one wants to hear me speak about my father. No one wants to talk about George. She's been gone seven years. But I want to talk about George. So what do we say for someone? How do we help someone? Well, being with somebody who is grieving, being with somebody who is in pain can be very difficult. It can be triggering for us in our own pain, our own loss, our own grief. But being with somebody exactly where they are, sitting with them exactly how they're feeling and not asking them to change is exactly the right thing. And it's okay to ask them, is this okay? Do you want to talk about it? Do you want to not talk about it? What would you like to do? I think uh, a real common complaint I get from people in therapy is that people want to cheer them up. But that effort to cheer someone up can get misconstrued with somebody who's feeling this grief. It can feel like you want to invalidate their feelings. You want to just move them past it quickly. Now, there's no one way to support someone who's grieving. But invalidating their feelings is certainly not the way. I had someone tell me recently that if they stopped grieving, they were afraid they were going to forget. I think that is such a common situation for a lot of us who have experienced grief, that somehow we think we're holding on to them, that we're keeping them closer to us by being stuck in this grief, when in fact all we're doing is keeping ourselves stuck. Moving through the grief and integrating it into our life is not forgetting our loved one or forgetting the loss. It's just allowing us to continue to live with those beautiful memories of these people or situations that meant so much to us. This is a difficult topic and I appreciate you sticking in with me. In therapy, grief is handled like any other emotional trauma and it's honored and it's spoken about. And we want to get past the grief brain where we're foggy and we're not sure, we feel numb. And we want to process and talk about how much it hurts. What does the loss feel like? And acknowledge and validate those feelings. And I'll leave you with a quote from Benjamin Franklin. He says, the things which hurt, instruct. Thanks for joining me again. As always, I so appreciate you listening. And if you'd like to share this podcast with anyone, please feel free to do that. Or also, you can give me a review. I always appreciate that. I also have in my show notes my contact information. I would love to hear about what you think about this episode, what episodes you would like to hear. 
or if you'd like to just speak with me. It's, uh, it's an honor for me to share my thoughts with you, and I hope that you find them useful. See you next month. Thank you so much for listening in. I hope you've learned a thing or two that you can apply today. To explore further or to get in touch with me, just visit my website at bonniewims.com. There you can book a complimentary 30-minute online video session to ask me any questions and determine if working together feels right for you. Or you can submit your questions about therapy and I'll do my best to offer answers on an upcoming episode. Remember, therapy might not be for everyone, but it may be right for you.